0: Hello, Brain Allies. You're listening to Brains Out Loud, where we talk about important topics surrounding mental health, from our personal life to our work life and everywhere in between. Our goal is that through these conversations, we can help others prioritize mental health at an equivalent level to physical health. This is your co-host, Juliette speaking, and today we are here with Anthony Lario, who is a man of many talents, from performing as a musician, to acting and creating comedy, to being behind the scenes of major reality TV show productions. But all this glamour doesn't come without a cost. And today, you'll hear about how Anthony's experiences in the performance industry have impacted his own mental health. Anthony, thank you so much for being here with us today. I know we have quite a bit of ground to cover, but what is it exactly that you want to focus on discussing surrounding this topic of mental health?
1: Well, I think it's important uh especially you know now during the coronavirus that the entertainment industry is already kind of a wild place to navigate and now it's shifted even more uh because you know it's based off of a communal experience multiple people being together and so that aspect is kind of stripped and so i just kind of think you know the navigation through the entertainment industry the people who work in it the very specific types of personalities how to compartmentalize using, you know, some of my experiences and then also on the other side of it, being in front of the camera, the performance aspect as well.
0: Yeah. So can you start by telling us a little bit more about yourself, what you do and kind of what your experiences so far in the industry have been like?
1: Sure. So I, uh, you know, I've always been a fan of performing ever since I was a little youngling. I I had a knack for, I think, think like wit and humor that you know they always say like you know young gay kids are like the ones who are upstairs at the party like talking to the parents while the kids are downstairs (laughs) I was like that's what I was doing and it kind of coincided with this performance thing and um, I kind of carried that throughout and and so my first uh, kind of I studied communications in college because I thought you know theater I can eventually get back into that. But I think the core of everything entertainment lies in communicating, um, whether that's performance studies or interpersonal communication. And so I always kind of wanted to hone in on that. And uh, I eventually started my first job right out of college was in casting um, for ads on Snapchat and live streaming. And um, also I, I began to do my own podcast and comedy skits on entertainment, reality TV, kind of the communication of it. And it eventually landed me a job working um, uh, on Sirius XM corresponding for the Housewives and the CW. And then eventually working behind the scenes on the production. So it's kind of multifaceted. I'm like, I, I think it's rare that somebody from a young age in their career, like works in front of the camera and behind the scenes. So Intermittently all day, every day. And um, you know, the experience is subjective, but there are a few things that I think are very common um while getting into it, the industry. And I think one of the main ones is the uh kind of diva stereotype, right? But it's not necessarily a stereotype, (laughs) if that makes sense.
0: Oh, absolutely. Well, before you before you go on i just want to say that i think it's so interesting that you're able to bring this perspective to the table that most people cannot that mm-hmm. you have this background of what it's like to work behind production and then what it's like to work in front of the camera as you mentioned and i imagine that your experiences and your personal connections and the way that you've been impacted by the industry has varied based off of you know behind the scenes and in front of the camera and kind of the anxiety of production and the anxiety and pressure of making sure that, you know, lights, camera, action, everything's on, you know, the way it needs to be and everything is getting out to the public, the way that everybody desires for it to be seen. And then also the side of performance anxiety and that, what that must be like. So Mm. I'm really interested to hear more about it, but go on. You, you mentioned the diva culture and I'm interested to see where this is going.
1: Yeah. I mean, something also interesting that, that, you touched on there was like it's a very specific switch that you have to flip on and off um or that people think you have to flip on and off i've i realized that for my own like mental health insanity like what i need to do is like keep them both on at the same time um so i have to have like the on camera thing in my head and then also the behind the scenes thing because when it comes down to it you know somebody who knows both is going to be able to do both better and, and or do one better than the other. And, and um, I think that a lot of times, a lot of the really strong personalities that you work with, um, they only really know one side of it. And so that's what makes it hard for a lot of young people who do both. Um, and, and so you see these people who are very, very, heels dug into the ground, stagnant and stubborn in how they do things when the entertainment industry is an evolving thing all the time whether it's the introduction of social media or platforms like Quibi which is like literally just watching tv on your phone um and so but yeah I would say the the main jarring kind of mental health problem that I ran Mm -hmm. into was dealing with uh diva culture in the entertainment industry and kind of high demands that were impossible to meet. I'm all about a challenge, you know? I love being challenged. I love uh, somebody pushing me to my limit. But there's a certain point where it's like, ooh, this is not attainable because it's impossible. And when I say impossible, I mean something like, hey, I'm going to need 10 Louis Vuitton bags here by the end of the day. Or like even as stereotypical as Devil Wears Prada, I need the manuscript of the new Harry Potter book. And it (laughs) it, it happens in the movies, but not in real life. Like you can't do it.
0: Right. Absolutely. I think that it's interesting when we talk about these unattainable expectations of us, because I think we see that in every industry in some way, shape or form. Yeah. And what's disappointing about that is that everybody starts from the bottom and you know, I have that perspective from working in the fashion industry. I studied fashion design, worked fashion week, and I feel that the expectation of what you need to accomplish and at what point you need to accomplish that by is so unrealistic and so unattainable that it adds so much distress and self-criticism and self-doubt along the way. But everybody that's finally made it, everybody that's finally gotten to where they need to be, they remember that pain. They know what it's like. They know that those expectations are unrealistic. Yet I personally felt in the fashion industry, and you might see this in your industry as well, is that for whatever reason, that doesn't always make people more empathetic. It doesn't always make them more understanding.
1: No, it's, it's, it's very much so a culture of, I had to go through it. Now you do too. And I think that's, uh, something that's even like a subcategory here is like young people and older people in different generations in in both of those industries because one has a mentality of like this is kind of how you earn your ranking and we are more so like hey what if we just make this an experience that everybody has the knowledge from the beginning and you just carry it out and you help people along the way i do think that it lends itself to a creative environment when you do have kind of rough experiences i think that all storytelling pulls from uh, multifaceted places. So like pain and happiness and sadness. And so I think that a big mentality, and it's like kind of in the subculture, is like you have to go through effed up shit in order to make shit great. And so it's like-
0: To have any kind of creative background or passion or ability to perform.
1: Yeah, I, I think that also something is that, that's poignant and, and people need to talk about more is in the entertainment industry, especially reality TV, which is what I do mostly, it's, um, the job is not, it's not like being a CPA where your boss or the person that you're working for, you need those numbers and on time. It's very much about their personal life. So, you are getting very involved in this person's inner making. And so, their woes, their happiness, everything becomes yours, just like your boss's numbers in the CPA position become your numbers. So, you're taking on the uh, emotions of somebody else while trying to understand them in order to make the work the best as possible. And that's where people who do method acting and Stanislavski start to get depressed because it's like, how many personas can you take on at time without, you know, kind of forgetting your own or having somebody else impact you in like a really profound way. way.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, something that you mentioned is how how much of this can you take before you start to break down, before you become depressed or anxious. And I think something that is so important that needs to be established is that the burnout rate is so high for people in you know, the acting and performance industry and people in the fashion industry. And again, you know, I'm just speaking comparatively from my industry to yours, but both of them have this concept of the spotlight yeah. and spotlight being on you and having to be on all the time. And I think as you're moving up the ranks, you have this pressure to show who you are, who you're capable of being, what your creative style is, what your talent is, all while trying to do the background balancing act of the person who's actually on stage, who's actually getting attention, who's actually getting the stardom and the fame and the way that they treat you, regardless of how hard you've worked to get them to where they are. I think that's disappointing. I believe in other industries, there's this ability to, you know, you do a really good job and you get a raise or you get a promotion and you start to work higher and higher and higher. And, Your manager congratulates you on, you know, booking a deal or whatever it might be. But I think that in the performance industry, it takes so much longer for someone to finally say, well done, congratulations, I appreciate you. I appreciate what you brought to the table today and how your hard work has contributed to mine.
1: Yeah, I mean, I I think that what's really interesting about that is you can kind of see it in the numbers, too. So, for example, like um, somebody who's on Broadway, like you get paid the same amount as an ensemble member as you do as a lead character, depending on your name. So if you go into the show already with a big name, then you're going to get paid more for kind of cameo rights and stuff like that. But um it's kind of impossible to get into broadway or even film without being paid like it doesn't matter if you're better at acting better at uh you know singing dancing if you're a triple threat if you're in the ensemble you're paid just as much as you are as a lead role in that industry and so there's no really kind of I guess, mo- motivation. I guess the motivation there is to be a big name so then you can get paid more and going into another production. Yes. But then it's not just honing in on your craft. It's, ma- it's being on, like you said. You have to have some sort of star-sona. You know, you have to be this extra thing, just kind of like how a boss would want to be You know, super commanding to gain respect. You have to have a persona on top of your talent to gain respect.
0: Wow, that's really interesting. I think again, this is something that's so unique to the you know certain industries like acting and performing and, and being on Broadway. You know, it's not just what your GPA was in college or what your resume is, or you know something that someone was saying to me about acting. I had done an interview in the beginning of the summer with someone who was talking about the fact that when he goes to an interview, he not only has to think about Am I going to be on? Am I, are they going to think that I'm the right person for the role based off of how talented I am and based off of my conversation with them? But is my hair color the right color? Mm -hmm. Am I the right height? Am I tall enough? You know, are they gonna be thrown off by my physique? Are they gonna be disappointed by the color of my eyes? And that was something to me that, you know, really took me back as well because it's something that you don't think about. when when we see these stars and when stars have finally made it when they finally got to where they are and they're so incredibly highly paid and i think that there is this you know half of the community or half of america or society believes well actors and actresses are way 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 overpaid and and they don't deserve the credit that they get and they don't deserve you know the um the millions and millions of dollars they do for just acting but hey, but how long did they have to work to get to that place? How long did it take for them to make a name for themselves? And how much of themselves did they have to sacrifice? How, you know, how anxiety-inducing was it was? How much more pressure did it add to their plate every single time they went to an interview or to get a role? And also, how much money are they bringing to these big corporations that are behind them, um, in addition to just what they bring to to film? So I think that that's something interesting as well.
1: And us and us watching them like we like if because my dad famously once was like oh i think the the oscars are so stupid because you know we don't have these for lawyers and i'm like yeah well also i'm not watching you on tv being a lawyer all day (laughs) like like you're
0: fired by that
1: yes and so of course that the there's a lot of praise uh, and I think people don't understand how greatly they are influenced by art and music and culture because people are like, well, why are they getting so much praise? It's like, well, because you don't know. Subconsciously, you might be doing things in your own life because you saw a movie last week on Netflix and it's inspiring you to go get that job. It's like, art dictates life. And I think that people struggle with that. People often ask me like, when I do interviews, like, uh, do you ever talk about politics and on your platform, on your page or podcast? And I'm like, yeah, I do. But something that I think is just as important, if not more important, is pop culture because pop culture is the politics of art. And it's like, that dictates more than anything, how we treat other people, how we vote, how we do everything.
0: And art Um, inspires change.
1: Yeah, 100%.
0: It's the moments that move you. That motivate you to get yep. up and go do something about the pain that you just felt in this movie, um, you know, the suppression that you just witnessed, or the segregation, or you know, it's even watching other people create art in documentaries, and then that yeah. inspiring you to go create art and to explore new avenues, or or watching a documentary or a movie, Bohe- Bohemian Rhapsody was like inspired me to start playing ukulele again and to start playing the piano again, and you know, to stay up extra hours every night and learn a song that made me feel good about myself. And so I think that, you know, that's something that needs to be addressed and acknowledged. But then let's talk about the other side of the spectrum. So there's this idea where we understand that being in an industry where there's stardom and fame is, you know, there's a lot of pressure and there's a lot of buildup to getting there. And there's a lot that someone has to put into working to receive that um, positive reinforcement and to get that salary that they deserve. But then what's the opposite side of it where we look up to people and we're inspired by people and then they don't turn out to be the person that we thought they were or they let us down?
1: So I, ha- I have a experience that goes perfectly with that introduction. <laughs> uh, so my kind of first job personally working with uh, a famous person. Um, She's a woman on the Real Housewives in New York. And I think that it's often a, a detriment with a lot of um gay men. And I'm going to and I, I wanna say LGBTQ plus, but I think that um, there's studies and there's theories going into specifically gay men, specifically gay white men, um about diva worship culture. And so we find uh, you know, I've talked about this before, gay men and straight men I think both objectify women, it's just on different levels. And so gay men love the allure of the powerful woman and the bitch for lack of better terms. And, and that's why they, you know, we love housewives. We love, you know, um, desperate housewives, Sex in the City, uh, Jessica Lang and any role she's ever played, Laura Dern. It's like very common thread of people. And, uh, you know, I had seen this woman and I was just so enamored by her on my television screen. And I'd watched her for almost a decade before I met her in person. And uh, it really, really affected me having that, you know, veil kind of stripped. And I think it happens often in our lives as it is. So as we get older, we realize, oh, maybe my friend isn't necessarily who I thought he was. Or my girlfriend isn't who I thought she was. Oh, I'm realizing my parents are not superheroes. But it's even bigger to the aspect of when those people disappoint you, you often listen to a song, you watch TV. And so having this other level of finding this person that was my escapism yeah. and realizing how she's just a person too, who is can be awful, who can be horrible and and really kind of abusive, I was like, holy crap, like, it really is an allure. And, and that's something that I had to really grapple with and decide whether or not I wanted to continue working in the industry. Because um, some of the stuff I experienced while working with her was not only, uh, you know, hard, it was like, very mentally draining, and not just mentally draining to the point where I'm like, I need to sleep it's like I started getting into a habit and I, this is how I describe it to people. It's like, you know, somebody wakes up and they're like, okay, I'm awake. Time to brush my teeth, get in the shower, get my bag, drink my coffee and I'm going to go. When I would wake up, it was like, crap, I'm awake. Holy crap, I'm awake. Now I need to sit on my phone and scroll through YouTube for as long as I can before I have to brush my teeth, before I have to get a shower. Yeah. And so every second of my life was dictated with this dread. And it was like emotional terrorism, I describe it. It's awful. Um, and I often think if I did not have as thick of a skin as I do have that I've de- developed, uh, so it might deter somebody from working in the industry at all, this experience. And so um, I think it's helpful that we're doing this to let people know that these experiences are inherent in the industry doesn't make them right yeah but there is a way to move on and to compartmentalize these experiences and um, eventually afterwards you will have it happen to you again but when it happens to you again you'll be prepared you'll have your shoulder pads on your knee pads the helmet and it cushions the blow but It doesn't make it right, if that makes sense. There's a lot of things that aren't right, but unfortunately, we have to figure it out by ourselves at a certain point.
0: (laughs) Absolutely. Well, I think there's two things that I want to touch base on. One is how it emotionally makes you feel to see someone that you look up to and idolize as fabulous and amazing and talented and realize that they have a cruel side to them and, and kind of what that does in terms of your motivation, and your inspiration in in the industry. And mm-hmm. then I also want to talk about the idea of, you know, you said, these experiences tend to make us want to give up. They tend yeah. to make us want to break down. And they t- they tend to make us not want to go on. And I think that um, it's important to acknowledge that we can take a break. So yep. first, 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 let's talk about, you know, realizing that this person isn't the person that you wanted them to be. And not only the emotional damage that they might cause to you, but when this woman ended up not being the person who you thought that she was going to be, how did it make you feel in terms of your inspiration and the way that you looked at other women in the industry and other, so to speak, divas that you might've found to be inspiring in the past?
1: Sure. I mean, I think that the first reaction was this very visceral panic. Um, I'm not a nervous person by any means. I often say I could like, you know, run down Fifth Avenue completely naked. And like, I don't care. Like, I'm not anxious. I'm not shy. I, I panicked. And when I panic, I get very shy. And it has only happened a few times in my life. And I, I got very, very panicky and very shy. And... um What it did to me was it affected um, one of my favorite things, which is art and TV and reality TV. Because then what I started to do was I would watch other people and start picking up on these little nuanced habits that I had seen in my client on other people. And I was like, Oh crap, I can't watch them anymore because they're an asshole. (laughs) Like, I just knew. So then it's not helpful either because I'm starting to maybe wrongfully assume things about people that might not necessarily be true. um, And that, you know, can create more blockings for yourself and your motivation to continue than that person who screwed you over even really meant to affect you. So. I think the first thing in dealing with that for me had to come with giving myself more credit than I felt like she had taken away from me. Okay. Um, so taking every, I guess it's kind of crazy to talk about it like this, but really honing in on everything that she admired me for and looking at these little pieces that i had gotten approval on and then realizing these are the things that actually matter that i was kind i was charismatic i was communicative i was um uh creative when it came to her own storyline it's what i studied in school was trying to get into other people's heads and try to help them communicate so i had taken those five things with me and said these are mine, they're not yours. This is more credit you gave me than you can take away. Wow. So that was really my first thing in moving forward. Um, and nobody can really help you do that. It's, uh, you know, it's a lonely experience because people in your life can say, Anthony, you could say to me, Anthony, you know that the stuff that she said about you or to you is not true. It doesn't matter because she still said them and it's still how I felt. And the only person who can fix it is me. But something that I realized recently is when you feel lonely, it's when you're supposed to be alone. And it's one of life's biggest ironies. And so I took that feeling and said, okay, I'm supposed to be alone. I'm supposed to compartmentalize this and I can take a break. And it's okay for me right now to not have any motivation to not have any inspiration and it's okay for me to regroup and find that again even if it's in a different facet of art or in a different facet of tv um and i was lucky enough to be able to dive right back in with a different client and i now have more of an awareness and and things to look out for and i also know how to deal with personalities like that better um So it's kind of crazy that I'm still working for the housewives and people (laughs) on the housewives, (laughs) but um, it's worth it. And that's something that I want to tell other people too. It's worth it to kind of stick it out, but not to the point where you are literally running yourself into the ground and it's okay to take a break, regroup and realize you can go back. You can do it.
0: Yeah. You touched on so many amazing points. I think the first being defining your own worth. And as you mentioned, anybody else giving you validation won't truly validate your feelings. It won't truly validate your self-worth. And yep. so if you are able to know what you're good for and know what you bring to the table and feel so confident in that it will allow you to move forward, knowing that whether or not people can acknowledge that on a 24 seven basis, it's still true. It's still true about yourself. And I think that comes with a lot of different things about our lives. You know, how do we see ourselves? You know, what is our sexuality? What is our self-identity? How do we want the world to, what what do we want the world to know us for? And as soon as we feel confident in who we have defined ourselves as, and we truly believe that that is the best version of ourselves, then anybody else saying something negative about who we've defined ourselves as cannot take that away from you. Because we yeah. can still walk away knowing that that still holds to be true regardless. And it becomes less scary to tell people who you are and less scary to show people who you are because you're less afraid of their criticism. But it's not to say that these people that we look up to or that we honor or if whose job it is to honor us can't you know cause us pain um, and yeah. cause us a little bit of self-destruction at times. And so as much as it's important to say, you know we are important we are special we are loved and we are capable of doing amazing things it's also okay to feel sad and disappointed when the people that we looked up to let us down or belittled us and so it's kind of this wide variety of validation and where validation comes from and and how it feels to be invalidated you know when i was in school when i was in fashion design school I had decided from a very, very, very young age that I was going to be a fashion designer. At seven, I was like, this is what I'm meant to do. This is what I'm meant to be in my life. And I got to college and I went to fashion school. And my professors, who I idolized, and I thought they were so talented and so amazing, and I would watch them sew and create and do art. And I was like, wow, that's amazing. I want to do that. And then they would look at the work that I created and they would destroy it and they would rip it apart and they would tell me that it was horrible and that they didn't know what I was doing and maybe I should try to go into merchandising and selling clothes instead of designing it because they didn't really know what was going on. And I mean, they took any opportunity to take who you were and to bring it down and to deter that. And so I came into this mindset where I would go home to my roommates who weren't in my major and they'd be like, Oh my God, the you made is amazing. And I'd be like, Oh no, it's so embarrassing. Like it's actually really, really bad. Yeah. Or I would say, Oh, you know, I, I made this thing, but it's like really awkward and weird. And like, you know, I messed up on this here and there. And I would just constantly call out my criticisms to people wow. and that made them look at me differently. And that made them start to feel like, Oh, well, I mean, I don't know anything about fashion design. So I guess if you're saying it's not good, then it must not be good. Um, and I remember going into my senior critique and my professor had told me so many times that there was so many things wrong with my collection and that it wasn't good and that it wasn't um, interesting and that I didn't put enough time and energy into it, even though I knew that I had spent countless hours on it. Yeah. And she had someone, you know, from who was coming from Under Armour and someone who was coming from Lily Pulitzer and these people that were coming from these big, brands and they were coming to critique us and give us feedback and i got up to give my presentation and the first thing i said was this is wrong with it this is wrong with it this is wrong with it you know clearly i'm not good at sewing clearly i'm not good at this and one of the women looked at me and she was like what are you talking about you're not good at sewing what what do you mean this is i'm impressed by this like she gave me all this feedback and And so my, and I was talking about this experience with my therapist and she was saying something that she did is that anybody that ever asked her growing up if if she was smart, you know, people will be like, oh, are you really good at your job? Like, and they kind of give you the opportunity to tell you whether or not they are. And they say, are you really good? Are you really smart? Like, are you good at math? Do you think you're going to do well on this exam? And my initial response and instinct was to always tell people like, no, I'm probably going to fail this. Or like, I don't know, I'm really stressed out about this. Or like, no, my boss has been such a bitch to me today. Like, she doesn't like me. And she was saying, you need to always tell people like, I am smart. I'm, yes, I'm going to do really well in this exam. Yes, I'm going to kill this collection. Yes, I'm going to um, get this promotion. I know I'm going to get this promotion. Because yeah. the more that we tell other people that we may or may not, because we don't want to come off as cocky or we don't want to come off as too confident – the more we're deterring our own self-worth day after day after day. And the more that we surround ourselves with people who don't believe in us because we don't believe in ourselves, the less capable we are going to, going to be at creating these masterpieces and these works of art and these opportunities in our lives and our careers.
1: You're so right. And so many things that you said there, I, I can relate back to myself in so many ways. It's, it's really true what you said about the, um, and, and we got to be careful, too, not to develop. There's there's a healthy, right? So when we look at these people, like your professors, or for me, my client, that was like the Miranda Priestley of Housewives. Like, we have to draw a very fine line between having empathy for them and understanding why they're acting the way that they are towards us and developing Stockholm Syndrome. Because I think that oftentimes people develop Stockholm Syndrome people like their captors like they fall in love with their captors and they believe that this person who's abusing them is right and um sure sometimes things that we make in art are not as good as they could be and we need that criticism in order to guide us but there's a and you can tell as a person I think it's one of the amazing gifts of being a human being you can tell when somebody's criticizing and pushing you to be the best. And they're just trying to obliterate you and your dreams and hopes. It's very, very clear. And I think people often say, well, like what are the facts there? Like facts over feelings. And it's like, babe, we are human beings and we are made differently than other species. And that's why we have feelings. And a lot of other things (laughs) don't. (laughs) So
0: feelings inspire us. And there's, there's just a, there's just a fine line between constructive criticism and abuse. Yeah. That's what it is.
1: Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. And it's it's interesting in order to have yourself be validated we have to stop uh at least i had to stop looking for other people to criticize the person who i felt like was abusing me so you know and i kept looking for like people to be like well she's a bitch right like she's horrible she's she's this she's a maniac i had to realize okay my experience with her is this, I don't need her to get fired or I don't need her to get a fine or a penalty in order for my feelings to be validated. And I've carried that on in relationships and and such too, because uh, I think also something that we struggle with, like as far as our mental health is concerned moving forward is once we feel liberated from this type of experience, we're constantly then looking for other situations in our life that might be like that and, and search to liberate ourselves there too. What we have to be careful of is not searching in our lives all the time for like the great injustices that we're trying to parallel with our unjust experience. Cause that's even worse for your mental health. Um, I think something important that my therapist taught me was that uh, I get into a pattern that I think that I can like fix all the world's problems. Um, and I do believe that I can sometimes, but <laughs> it's it's not my duty to constantly be calling everybody out in my life that, you know, show certain qualities. And I can do it if I want to, but not to the point where it's like affecting me so badly. Um, I also have like another interesting aspect to this is that I've like grown a bit of a following on Instagram, nothing crazy, but a sufficient amount enough where I have always wanted to be a famous person. I was like, I want to be famous. I want to have my name like on the screen and in lights. And uh, it's like I developed a thick skin, but I don't take criticism like I thought that I would. And when I say criticism, I mean, like, actually, like, mean stuff, like, bad stuff online. Um, but I, that comes, like, with the job. There's no other job that you put yourself out there in order to have somebody, like, call you slurs in your DMs or, like, <laughs> rip you apart. And so um, it's it's very nuanced and very interesting. I remember feeling all the time I would fantasize when I was younger about, like, being recognized in public and like I my parents were young age were like is he like a little mini narcissist like grown here and I'm like maybe (laughs) but um I could be but um that's undiagnosed I'm not (laughs) but um i the first time I ever got recognized like with my small like group of following I was in the airport last year going to Boston this girl in the airport she's like oh my god are you Anthony can I take a picture with you? Blah I follow you, and I've seen you on this and this, and it was one. Of the worst experiences of my entire life.
0: <laughs> it was. You you froze for a second. It was what?
1: One of the worst experiences of my entire life. Really. It was horrible, and what? it wasn't anything she did. Um she was as sweet as could be. I felt like naked and I thought like, oh my God, I'm the type of person that can run around naked. I'm the type of person that can expose myself. There was something about the cross over from like the attention here and the attention in person. And it made me feel like I had to be on and I had to perform. And it made me develop a little bit of more empathy, which actually helped me mentally to Figure out why this woman, Dorinda from The Housewives, was so horrible to me. And I felt like, oh, okay, she, this feeling that I'm having right now, she's feeling all the time. Her job never ends. I had the ability to go home at 6 p.m. She has the option to be in her apartment and still be famous online. And then right after that, she has the option to go outside and go to Starbucks and still be recognized. So her job, never really ends. And so I guess that's something that's kind of, you know, nuanced within the entertainment industry when you're a famous person is that your job is just never over. And that can be really draining on your mental health, I'm sure. If I was so, you know, shocked by my one experience at that time of being recognized, I can't imagine what she was going through.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think that's a really good point. And it's yes, it's interesting because you started that off by saying there's having a there's a difference between needing to have sympathy for someone and needing yeah. to have empathy for someone and then understanding why they are the way they are and what is causing them to act the way that they're causing. And that all comes back to our mental health. You know, the way yeah. that she was being impacted by the industry that she was in was clearly affecting her mental health and her ability to treat others a certain way and You know, part of that is very, very much her responsibility, and part of that is mental illness, and it's a mental health issue. So I think that that's a really good point to bring up, and something that I especially want to touch base on, again, that you brought up earlier, and we've kind of been talking about throughout, is just this ability to let ourselves say, I need a break right now from this. I need to let myself be alone. I need to let myself be men- you know, mentally isolated and to compartmentalize what I'm going through and decide where I wanna move from here. And I think that's something that I had to do in the fashion industry. Four years of college and studying fashion design and just receiving constant constant negative criticism and doubt and I got to a very very fragile place where I didn't know what I was good for anymore. I couldn't acknowledge my talent or my true ability that I now know and, and recognize that I have and because of that I needed to take a break and I took a break for almost an entire year. I graduated in June and it wasn't until a you know I think it was the following February that I even picked up a, a marker and a pencil and and some paint again and started wow drawing and sketching again like I had experienced so much pain that I didn't know how to love myself I didn't know how to give myself creative ability anymore and I didn't know how to make anything for myself. Everything felt like I needed to make it for the approval of others and I needed to draw or sew or create for the approval of others on social media or the approval of my professors or the approval of my friends and family. And that if I created something that I didn't feel like I could show someone else or, or present on a social media platform or submit to an assignment, then it wasn't worthy of receiving any appreciation at all. You know, the, the, just the appreciation of art it's like if you're a musician and i'm sure that you can relate to this like not every single time you sit down at the piano you want to record yourself and post it on social media sometimes these are these things are things that we want to do because we love them and we've come to love them from a very very young age before we were recording ourselves and putting it on youtube and putting it on instagram and and seeking that approval in a professional setting and I took a really, really long break from it. And doing that allowed me to find this new love for it and this new validation and my worth and my ability to create. And it's been so fun and so inspiring and so motivating to get back into the fashion industry and to start creating work again. And I just think that, People need to realize that if they take a step back from what no matter what your career path is whether it be marketing or accounting or a form of art and acting or design or whatever it might be just because you take a year off or two years off or 10 or 15 years off does not mean that it's ever too late to find that love for that again and I think being in a, a really high pressure career situation or being in a really high pressure education system it can force us to lose our love um, for our platform and for our medium for a little bit. And so it's okay to take a break from it, but we don't need to be afraid that we've lost it forever because it's always going to be waiting for us and we're always going to have our passion and love for it. And, you know, taking time off, I think has allowed me to come back with so much more to bring to the table and you know, self-love to add to that, that I hadn't had in a really long time. So. I think yeah no
1: I completely agree i I think that my break was like essential to me like ever doing something again. um I think that like so I like view kind of what I do in like a lot of different layers, like what you hit on, so like I can't do like my job that I make money in unless I'm like also in the piano and like singing. And I'm also, like, making funny stuff. Like, it all goes together to me in my head. Like, that's just a me thing. And I think that oftentimes a lot of creative people have that issue that they constantly have to be honing in on what really makes them creatively feel fulfilled before making money from it in another way. And so what I did was I really took a lot of time to eat food that I like to eat, um, you know, drinking good wine, like not sometimes too much (laughs) excessively, but you know, I needed to do that. I needed to like hone in on things that like really made me, me. And, um, you know, sit down on the piano and just write. And that's what I did sometimes for like days at a time, like taking a break, I would just write and write and write and write, and write everything down, whether it was musical or not. Um, and I was lucky enough that, like, that came to me very fast. So, like, I, as, I remember, like, getting on the train, coming home after I left this job, after I finally walked out and, like, stood up for myself. I was like, okay, like, on to the next thing. I'm going to start writing. I'm going to start uh, giving myself therapy through my art. And so I never took a break in that aspect. But I took a really big, heavy break from all things reality TV, all things my career that I had studied and like devoted so much time and effort into um, before I got back into it again this January. So it was like October to January. And, you know, some people might say, oh, that's, you know, not that long of a time. But to me, it was because it was something that I was so passionate about before. Yeah. Um, And, You know, I felt like it was unbelievably necessary and I wouldn't be where I am right now without having done that. And also, you know, it sounds a little hokey, but there has to be some form of forgiveness because when you forgive other people that I feel like wronged you, you don't need them to apologize, right? Like I don't need somebody to apologize for me to forgive them and i never used to be able to understand that quote unquote narrative but i think i get it more so than ever now because i think that you kind of take back your power when you do that if you're so angry at somebody and you're so unbelievably uh obsessed with what you were wronged with and how you felt um you're just letting that person like still have that power over you. So if there's no chance for accountability for that person, forgiving them just brings all the power back to you. And I think that's the most important thing.
0: Yeah. And, you know, I could really take some of that advice and and put it into action. So I'd love to hear more about your healing process or your forgiving process because or how do you even start to forgive someone? Because I think for me, it's I'm a very naturally forgiving person. And I forgive you know my exes and my relationships. I forgive my family and my friends very easily because these are people that I loved um, and respect. And I am able to understand that people make mistakes. I think even if I decide to cut off someone in my life or a friend or an ex-boyfriend or whatever it might be, I'm able to forgive and move on, but I do yeah. think that I have the hardest time forgiving people who have made me feel so badly about myself in terms of my creative abilities. Or, you know, I think the people that I hold the most resentment in my heart towards in my life are my high school sports coaches and my like college professors who told me that I wasn't shit and that I wasn't going to be That's shit. And I think that as much as I know that they were wrong, and I truly believe to my core that they were wrong, I have a hard time forgiving them in the sense that I feel totally moved on from it.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think this is like kind of a thing that supersedes forgiveness, just kind of like supersedes everything. like And I'm like the opposite of you in in that way. I'm a very resentful person and like a very vengeful person. And I've had to like, kind of obviously put that on the back burner in order to navigate through life in like a quote unquote normal way. Um, And so I've had to like really, and you know, therapy didn't really help me with it. Uh, The words of friends and family didn't help me with it. It was kind of a Journey that I just figure out on my own, primarily through like writing and playing the piano. And I realized that there's multiple components to it. The first uh, step is empathy, right? right. Um, and so it's that very careful, cautious empathy though, we can call it controllable, cautious empathy. Um, because you don't wanna make excuses for somebody, right? But empathy leads to perspective, which is the second part, being able to put yourself in somebody else's shoes and say, okay, maybe this is why this person did this, or maybe this is why they wanted to make me feel this way. And while it doesn't excuse the behavior, you can kind of relate it back to own experiences in your life where you maybe had done that to somebody without even knowing it. Then once you get there, you realize lack of malicious intent. So once you get to that point, you say, okay, this person might have meant to hurt me, but not necessarily meant to hurt me at the same time. They just wanted to hurt a person. It had nothing to do with me, Anthony or Juliet. They just wanted to hurt a person. So we're on our fourth step now. So first it's empathy that leads to perspective, which leads to realization of lack of malicious intent. And then the last part is the most important for me, which is finding control in the uncontrollable and finding solace in that uncontrollability. <laughs> so, when something is just so haywire that you can't control, sometimes you need to just sit there and let the tornado pass through. You need to sit there and let the fire burn until it's done burning. You can fill up as many buckets of water as you want and try to put that out. Well, that fire is not going to go out. You're just going to left, be left even more exhausted. So finding solace in that uncontrollability is hard. I'm telling you, it's not an easy thing. But once you kind of throw your hands behind your back and surrender to that feeling, you're not actually surrendering to it. What you're doing in that moment is giving yourself the break that you need.
0: Wow. That is the best advice that I've received in a very long time. And (laughs) that will be really helpful to me. And I think that will be really helpful to a lot of people because you broke it down amongst four steps. So it's not just a concept that we need to follow, but a a literal guided path that we can take, you know, one step at a time. And, And you talked about how the first step leads to the second, which leads to the third and leads to the fourth and how important each aspect is. And I think that it's a process. Forgiveness is a process and it's not something that is easy for many people. So I think we need to also forgive ourselves for having a hard time forgiving these people, you know, Mm. forgive ourselves for having resentment, for having pain, for holding things against people, because none of us want to be that way. None of us want to hold grudges or be a resentful person. That's pain and weight that we're carrying on our shoulders. And in our chest, and we need to let go of. And it's not as easy as just saying, "Just let it go. Just move on. Just forgive." So I think that breaking it down into that four-step process is going to be really, really useful for a lot of people. So thank you, Anthony.
1: Yeah, I hope so. And I, I think that the most important, well, uh, the most important thing that people need to recognize with it is that um, empathy does not always equal you know, falling back into the same habit, right? And so I think that's oftentimes how people, whether it's your career, which we've been focusing on mostly today, or it's like your relationship with your partner, or your parents or your family, like you can have empathy and also separate too. You can forgive somebody without the intent of redeveloping a relationship. Um, yeah. Of course, I always tell people in, in my life when they go through kind of situations, whether it's in work or in personal situations, like it's okay to, you know, move on without, I think people often think that moving on means that you have to hang out with that person again, or you have to go back to that job then. No, it's okay to make a clean break. I think it's a very false misconception that people say, well, you know, it's never a clean break whenever you leave anything. No, you can make it a clean break. You can do that for yourself. You can make your brain very clean.
0: Yeah, and I think that that also relates back to this concept of closure and what defines closure. And, you know, we talk about relationships and that goes to relationships with family members, with friends, with coworkers and people that we work with and have been employed by, and also our, you know, romantic relationships. And closure can be something that we come to on our own terms. It doesn't need to be something that is an operation between two people. And I think that that is one of the most common misconceptions is that you need to go and have a face-to-face conversation with them and receive an apology or apologize to them for what you feel like you did to wrong them in order to receive closure and move on. But once a relationship has ended, no matter who it is and in what space, That relationship is over, and any pain or discomfort that you continue to carry with you after that relationship has ended needs to be worked through on your own terms, in your own way, and you might go and meet up with your ex-boyfriend or girlfriend or a family member that you haven't spoken to or a friend or a boss, and they might not apologize, and they might yeah. tell you that they still feel the way that they felt in the first place or that they don't regret the thing that they did or said. And that will not bring you solstice. That will not bring you peace. And so, um, it ca- like you said, it can be a clean break. Make it a clean break. And we need to find ways to receive closure and forgiveness on our, by ourselves, on our own terms. And I think that also goes back to you don't have to contact the person that hurt you and tell them that you tell them that you forgive them. But just forgive them for yourself so that you can move forward.
1: Yeah, 100%. And, you know, it doesn't always take two to tango. That's the thing. And, and I think a big part of what we have to do in, like, mental health, um, you know, advocacy is, like, kind of dismantling a lot of the colloquialisms and, and metaphors that, like, are ingrained in us, like, from when we're young. And, like, something as simple as it takes two to tango. No, it doesn't take two to tango. Sometimes it's a solo dance. Like, it doesn't. <laughs> I, and I think that, you know, there's certain people that realize that at a young age. And I think that oftentimes those people end up do struggling with depression um, and anxiety because it's a very visceral realization from a young age that you might see the world a little bit differently than what you're taught. I struggled with that my whole life, which was, you know, constantly being taught things in school, and then I would combat them. I found myself in high school a lot, like in detention towards the end of my time there. I was always combating teachers and combating authority. And so you can go overboard, which I've learned <laughs> to not do my, with the help of therapy and such, but I think it's okay to healthily question mantras that were given like it is what it is or time heals all wounds or it takes two to tango let's be you can come out with your own colloquialisms
0: absolutely yeah find your own method find your own mantra and and carry that with you well anthony this has been such a fantastic conversation and interview i'm so glad that we were able to do this today because I knew that you were going to bring so much insight to our listeners, but you've really taught me a lot today too, and, and helped me come to a lot of conclusions that I needed to come to in my own life. And in terms of forgiveness and how we move forward in the industry that has wronged us or how we move forward, or, you know, surrounding ourselves by our coworkers or our loved ones that we feel have let us down. So thank you for all of your insight today. And we've got to do this again another time. We've got too much, too much ground to cover and you've got too much amazing insight.
1: I would absolutely love to. And thanks so much for having me on. Seriously, it's been a pleasure.
0: Of course. That was Anthony Lario. He is amazing. And Anthony, why don't you plug your Instagram so that our listeners can go and see your singing and comedy and piano playing and so on and so forth.
1: For sure. You guys can find me on Instagram at Anthony Lario, A-N-T-H-O-N-Y-L-A-R-I-O.
0: Amazing. Okay, Anthony, we'll be in touch soon. Thank you.